Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are giving you the final two talks from Alistair Roberts from our recent regional course in the Twin Cities. We posted the first talk back on episode 240 on how to read the Bible, where he dealt with the strangeness of Scripture, some obstacles in our way of reading the text, and the importance of hearing God's Word. And here, in the second and third talk, he's going to go into how to read the Bible typologically, while also dealing with other facets of the text, such as chiasms. What you'll also see in this episode is a significant amount of back and forth with those who are in attendance of the lectures, which is a good example of how we learn in community. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is Alistair Roberts teaching at our Twin Cities Regional Course on how to read the Bible. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea! And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth, on the earth beneath, on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up 
loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he has both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, even whom the, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Today I want us to think a bit more about the story of Pentecost and how we can read this story in a way that gets the full richness of its meaning out of the text. This is a text that gives us an understanding, a foundation for developing a deep understanding of what the church is, what it means to live as the people of God within our situations. But yet understanding how to read narrative as theology is a challenge. It's not something that we're used to doing. When we read narrative, we think of it as a mere record of events. But yet, can a narrative communicate theology? Can a narrative communicate an application? These are the questions that I want us to look at this morning. How does narrative mean? How does it communicate a meaning? If we're reading this story, there are many ways in which we might try and discern its meaning. Maybe we have a structure of understanding that we bring to the text. 
something that maybe we've gained from the systematic theologies that we've read, or maybe from reading the epistles of Paul. And then we come to this text in Acts, and we try and understand it on those terms. But is there a way in which the story itself can communicate meaning to us? And that's the question that I want us to think about. Is scriptural narrative nothing more than the reporting of historical fact? What does it mean when we say that scripture as narrative is true and authoritative? Now, for many, I think that scene as it's being true is that these events really happened. Now, that's important. If Christ was not raised, then our faith is in vain. If the events of Pentecost did not occur, then has the Spirit truly been given to God's people? These events are historical, and it's important that we read this account as a witness to actual events in history. But is that all that we're seeing? Is there something more that takes place here? Is this text something that can be authoritative, authoritative for our lives without having to be merely authoritative in the sense that we believe that it happened. I believe it's authoritative in a deeper way than that, and hopefully we'll see this as we go through. Yesterday I mentioned the importance of paying attention to the way that stories are told. I gave the example of the stories of Christ's temptations, each one of them told in a slightly different way, drawing attention to a certain area of Old Testament background. So in Matthew, Jesus is like Israel going into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days, like Israel was tempted for 40 years. In Mark, he's the one who does, is with wild beasts. He's cast out into the wilderness. Maybe Jesus is like David at that point, exiled from the court of Saul. We might also think about the story of David at the very beginning of his life, at the very beginning of his ministry, as it were, he's anointed in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. And then in chapter 17, what do you see? You see this great giant dressed in scaly armor standing against Israel for 40 days. And then he's defeated with a blow to the head. His head is crushed by the seed of the woman. Now, there are patterns there that we can see taking us all the way back to that first declaration of the gospel in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. And so that's a particular story that maybe provides a background for understanding Christ's conflict with Satan in the wilderness. In Luke, there's a different background, the background of the story of Ezekiel. If you read through the story of Ezekiel, you'll see that there are a series of places that Ezekiel is taken to in the Spirit. So Luke says, Jesus being filled with the Spirit was led in the Spirit into the wilderness and he's tempted in various places. Ezekiel, the hand of God is upon him and he is led in the Spirit into the valley of dry bones. Then he's led to the high mountain. Then he's led to various extremities of the temple. There is a similar pattern there. And that can help us to understand what's taking place with Christ. That Christ is receiving, as it were, a false vision, a false apocalypse given by Satan, this is the way things could be if you followed me rather than the vision that God has given. There's an alternative being presented there, a false vision. Go back a bit further in the story of Jesus in Luke, and what do you read? Jesus is about 30 years of age, and he's baptized by John. The heavens are opened, and he sees the Spirit of God descending in the form of the dove. What do you read at the beginning of Ezekiel? In the 30th year, he sees heavens open. 
and visions of God. And he sees the chariot of God coming down and God's presence that he sees within that. Now, this can help us to understand something about Christ's ministry as represented in the book of Luke. And as you read through that particular passage, there is a lot of literary art in the way that story is told. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, you may notice this. We read the devil tempting him in the first temptation, and Jesus answers, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, that's not the answer that he gives in Matthew. In Matthew, he gives a longer answer. In Matthew, he quotes that passage from Deuteronomy, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, there's a slight addition there. What do we find in the story of Luke? that you feel there's maybe a missing step here. You're expecting for that to come, the end of that quotation, and it doesn't come. And so you think, why is that omitted? Is it just that Luke wants to be more terse in his account of what took place in the temptations? Or is there maybe something more going on? As we read through the chapter, one of the things we notice is that there's a strange passage that comes afterwards. Jesus is handed the scroll in the synagogue And as he takes that scroll, he declares the passage, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is his vocation that he speaks out from the scroll of Isaiah that's given to him. He rolls up the scroll hands it back to the attendant, and everyone, everyone's eyes are upon him. And then he declares to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This word that is given within Isaiah is taken on Christ's lips and he declares it forth as God's word of his vocation. What do we see then? They all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. It's the end of the quote. It's the allusion back to that verse from Deuteronomy. Now, how does that open the meaning of the passage up? You're paying attention to a structural feature of the text here and a literary parallel between two expressions. How can that open up the text? Well, in part, by giving us an understanding of what it means to live by the word of God. That Christ is handed the scroll and he takes this scroll into himself, as it were, and declares the word out. The words are not just coming out, he's not just declaring the words on the page. The words, as it were, are proceeding from out of his mouth. He's speaking forth the word of God that has been placed within him. And the word that he's speaking is not just a word on the page about God's servant, but a word about himself as the one who has been anointed by the Spirit of God. If we look back at the book of Ezekiel, and we've seen the background of Ezekiel playing out in this particular story, we see that at the beginning of Ezekiel's ministry, he is given a scroll. He eats the scroll. He declares his vocation from the scroll, and the words come out from his mouth in a similar way. The word has been ingested, has become part of him, and now the word proceeds from him. If you read the rest of the temptations, you'll see that there is a parallel between the temptations and the other events later on in the chapter. So the second temptation is high mountain. 
all the kingdoms of the earth. These can all be yours if you will bow down and serve me. Later on, Jesus talks to the people of Nazareth that physician heal yourself. These great works that you've done in other parts of the region, do them here. We'll support your kingdom mission. If you will be on our side that you'll serve us, we'll serve you. And Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own home, home country and talks about Elijah and Elisha. Now, that is a parallel between those two events. And then later on, what do you see? Jesus taken to the edge of the city and they try and cast him down from a high place. It parallels with the final temptation. Now, reading those events together, it helps you unpack the meaning of what's taking place. Maybe it helps you to understand later on in the gospel where you read the story of Christ and his temptations in the run-up to his death. Cast yourself down from the cross. Cast yourself down from the high place. These things may be connected. The cup that he has to drink, maybe that's connected with living by the word of the Lord, ingesting that rather than the bread that is, is produced from stones. And so narrative means often through the way that a story is structured. Think about the way that that is structured. It teaches us what it means to live by the word of the Lord. It gives us a portrait of Christ as the Ezekiel-like prophet who goes towards Jerusalem, who speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem, as the one who sees visions of God, who's prepared as the Son of Man. Read through the story of Ezekiel and again and again, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. Christ is the Son of Man. He's the one who fulfills that mission. He's the one who has the apocalyptic vision that moves from the valley or the um, wilderness to the um, high mountain to the various extremities of the temple. We see a similar pattern in the book of Revelation. If you read through that in chapter 17 onwards, there is a series of visions and those move from the wilderness to the high mountain to various parts of the city. And so maybe there are connections here that can help us unpack these different stories. Pay attention then to the way that stories are told. Where is the meaning to be found? Often not primarily within the text itself, but in the connections between a particular text and other texts. The paratexts, as it were, these texts that exist in communication with that text. So if you're reading the story of Ezekiel alongside the story of Luke, it opens up the story of Luke in various ways. You'll find the same thing with the story of 1 Samuel and the story of Luke. Read those two things alongside each other and you will find that they both shed light upon each other. Read the story of 1 Samuel alongside the story of Genesis, you'll see a similar thing. Or read the story of 2 Samuel. David, I mentioned yesterday, has a lot of parallels with the life of Jacob. We can read through many of these parallels, and the life of Joseph. He's one who shepherds the sheep of his father. He's sent to his brothers who think that they, he has ideas above his station. He ends up serving the king and rising to high authority, and all these other things that take place. We see connections with Jacob and themes of the blessing of Isaac. Is that your voice, David, my son, in the darkness of the cave? And the voice of Saul, lifting up his voice and weeping, like Esau wept when he did not get the blessing. The story of Laban and the story of Nabal. The story of um, the switching of the two daughters, the, the Merab who is promised to David and he's given Michael instead. 
These are all stories that remind us of the story of Jacob. As you read through the story of David, you'll see that it takes a very ugly twist. At the very, towards the end, later part of his life, we see his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And read that story and follow what happens, the way that his life unravels after that, and trace some of the themes. Now, if you read the story of Jacob, there are many ways in which you can think about the story of Jacob. You may focus upon the earlier part of his life, the events with Jacob and Isaac and Rebekah, or the events with the rivalry with Esau, or the relationship with Laban. These are defining events for Jacob's life. But there are also, there's another stage of Jacob's life, the mourning father, the father who's devastated by the loss of his sons. I read the end of David's life, after his sin with Bathsheba, you'll see his sin is played back to him in the next generation. It's the fruit that, or the seed that he has sown, bears the most bitter fruit within the life of his family. If you read the story of Jacob, his oldest son Reuben sleeps with his concubine. In the story of David, in the very place where he looked out from the roof of his house, that's where Absalom sleeps with his concubines. It's an ugly story of the consequence of sin playing out in the family. We see it in the story of Amnon and Tamar, where David, his sin with Bathsheba was an ugly sin that yields this even uglier sin in his son. Tamar, or Amnon, starts that story in his bed and making arrangements for people to be brought, making David complicit in his sin. Jonadab, the friend of, of Amnon, is the one who's the conspirator who helps him hatch this plot. Jonadab is the same relation to J David as Joab. It's not an accident. The sin is being played out again. David started that story of his sin with Bathsheba in bed, then went to the roof of the house. It's playing out the story again. It helps you to see part of the meaning of what he has done. His sin is pre presented back to him in an even uglier form. And he's devastated as a result of it. He never has the same power again as leader of his people. He's a spent force from that point onwards. And often when we read the story and don't pay attention to the way that these themes play out, we miss what God is teaching us. We miss the fact, for instance, that there is this replay of the story of Tamar and Judah. David is another Judah, and he fails in that regard. Absalom is compared to Judah in various ways. Absalom is someone with three sons and a daughter called Tamar. Now, he has a sister called Tamar, and he has a daughter called Tamar. Now, Judah had three sons and a daughter-in-law called Tamar. These comparisons are significant. Like Simeon and Levi, Judah or Absalom almost wipes out or is seen to wipe out the sons of a royal house. Simeon and Levi wiped out the Shechemites after the sin with Dinah. And in the story of David, David believes for a time that Absalom has wiped out all of the king's sons. That what Simeon and Levi did that brought grief to their father as a result of the rape of their sister he has done to the king's house. 
The sin is coming back upon his head. We see again his mourning at the end, his head going down to the grave, just like Jacob, his mourning after the loss of his son Joseph. David, as Jacob, helps us to understand the implications of his sin and how bitter the fruit that that yielded was. The words of the Torah are impoverished in their own place, but rich when read elsewhere, to quote from Yoram Hazoni's book, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture, where he observes the fact that when we bring these texts into correspondence with each other, they open up. When you're reading the story of Christ and you're reading it alongside things in the Old Testament, it opens up. So, for instance, I mentioned the parable of the Good Samaritan yesterday. Um, in passing, and the way that the movement from Jerusalem to Jericho, you later on have a movement of, from Jericho to Jerusalem, another man by the side of the road, another man calling for mercy. But there is another parallel that you might think of when reading that story. If you go to the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 28, there is Ahaz as king in Judah, and he does not do what's right in the sight of the Lord, and he's defeated by the king of Syria. Given into the hand of the king of Israel as well, who struck him with great force, Hecker the son of Remaliah killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of the men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Maseah, the king's son, and Az Azrakam, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought this spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry, angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me, and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Johanan, Berechiah the son of Meshillamoth, and Jehizekiah the son of Shalom, and Amasa the son of Hadlai, stood up amongst those against those who are coming from the war, and said to them, You shall not bring the captives in here, for you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord, in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the assembly. And the men who had been named, who have been mentioned by name, rose and took the captives. And with the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them, and carried all the feeble among them on donkeys, and brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. It's a familiar story. It's a story of good Samaritans. It's a story of someone going from Jerusalem to Jericho and being caught, as it were, among thieves. And the, all these themes of being fed and given something to drink, the bread and the wine, the emphasis upon the anointing with oil, donkeys, all these things are present within that text. 
And then when we read that against the background, the story of the Good Samaritan against that background, what does it teach us? What do we see in the passage of 2 Chronicles 28? What we see is Israel coming to an understanding in that moment of the brotherhood that they share with Judah. These brothers that they had treated as enemies, as not neighbors, now they realize that they are neighbors. There's a moment in which they are brought together as one people again. What is Jesus teaching in the parable of the Good Samaritan? A new Israel is being formed. The question is not, who is my neighbor, but are you a neighbor? Are you part of this new people that's being brought together in this work of mercy? And when we read these two chapters together, we find that the passage of the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that opens up, and this story opens up. So I gave the example of the two spies who are given half of a five-pound note, and they meet together in the marketplace, and they both display their half of a five-pound note, and there's a mutual act of epiphany. They both recognize each other. In the same way, when we bring passages of Scripture together like this, both of the passages can be opened up. These are passages that belong together. And as they belong together, we come to a deeper understanding of what both of them mean. This passage helps us to see what that new neighborhood that is being formed is. This is a restoration of Israel. It's not just an individual having a relationship with an individual neighbor. This is Israel's story coming to its destiny as God is restoring these people together and overcoming all the breaches that existed within them. This then can deepen our understanding and appreciation of Scripture. It can help us to move beyond just this instinct of driving towards what is most useful to us. When you read the Bible this way, you're not primarily focusing upon application, but the application arises from the text. You're paying attention first. Observe the text. Think about, where have I heard this before? Why has the text included these details? If you're telling a parable, why don't you just say, there was this man on this road and he fell among thieves. Why mention from Jerusalem to Jericho? Not even the Jerusalem-Jericho road, but moving from Jerusalem to Jericho. There is a particular direction of the movement. Why mention the Good Samaritan particularly? Now, there are some reasons in that the Samaritans are not an appreciated people by the Jews. There is an antagonism there. There is another occasion in Luke's Gospel in the middle of the, the section on the travelogue towards Jerusalem where another Good Samaritan is mentioned. Can anyone think of that occasion? One other Good Samaritan in Luke's Gospel. There are ten people, and one of them is a good one, and that person is a Samaritan. Yes, the leper that returns is a Samaritan. So we have Good Samaritans. We have two cases in Luke where a house is swept out. These sorts of themes repeat. We have two stories of an ox and a donkey and showing mercy to the ox and donkey. Bringing those things together can maybe help you understand those two stories. Bring those together and they both open out. This can then deepen our understanding, appreciation of Scripture, and application can arise from that. It deepens our faith, I believe, and our love for God. This is not just a random assortment of moral truths or moral tales. Nor is it just a series of historical events, and that's all it is. Events that occurred in some sort of historical sequence. This is God's 
great composition. This bringing together of all these different events in history, all working towards a revelation of himself and his son. And that revelation occurs not just in the, the bare narrative account of what Christ has done, but in the meeting together of these witnesses, as Old Testament and New Testament join together a witness, and in that common witness, it's as if there's a moment of epiphany. It's like the experience, if you remember in the 90s, those magic eye pictures, where you look at these details within a, a picture that doesn't seem to have any specific form to it, and you look at it a bit cross-eyed, and then you realize that there's a 3D effect that comes from it. And often it can be like that looking at scripture. There are all sorts of details that seem strange and random within the text. But if you look at them and bring, as it were, those two eyes of the Old and New Testament into proper alignment, and these different texts that we bring into correspondence, the text starts to come alive. It starts to become 3D, three-dimensional, as it were, to us. It will also enrich our applications when we actually arrive at them. The applications will have the full force of the text behind them. They won't just be taking that text and putting our force behind them, which often is what application looks like. Rather, the application arises from the meaning of the text itself, the theology that is implied in the way that Jesus tells that story. Those two things brought together show that the meaning of the text is not found primarily in its detached context, but in the wider world of the canon. This can be like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. If you're anything like me, when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, you have a certain strategy to it. You, first of all, start by identifying the corner pieces. If it's a rectangular or um, square puzzle, you identify those corner pieces, put them in place first. Then you try and find the edge pieces. Then you try and work out similar colors or similar shapes of pieces. Divide them into patterns and think about, maybe this has a different shade here. And, oh, there's a huge patch of black colors over there. I'm going to put them all a solid color in that particular point. I'm going to leave that to the end. And then we can work that out. And there's a process of patience that's involved here. A puzzle does not instantly make itself. You have to wrestle with it. You have to spend time with it. You have to pay attention to the details and the way that pieces interlock. You have to think about maybe there is a specific shape of piece that would fit in this spot. And I can't quite see that. Let's identify all the pieces that have something similar to that shape, put them all in a pile, and then maybe we can think about um, where they fit. And then very early on, even before you take the corner pieces often, you're turning over all the pieces and paying attention to them. Think about the details upon them and looking at the picture on the box, if you have one, and thinking about how you can order all this material together. When we're reading scripture, it's not too dissimilar. When you think about scripture, we are dealing with a puzzle. We are dealing with structure and with content. We're dealing with the similarities of details within the text, the similarities of content, but we're also dealing with structural details. So, so things like chiasms that can be very scary, but they're not really that scary when you get used to them. There are many ways in which chiasms can be used that are a bit of a stretch, but when we're thinking about chiasms, they can be helpful in thinking like, they're like the edge pieces. They're like identifying the shape of the pieces that would interlock together. 
Think about a story as a bookended structure often. And within scripture, you'll often see these bookended, bookend structure stories. So you'll have one element at the end, one, ele- one element at the beginning, which is mirrored with another element at the end. And then in, going like that all the way through. And then you'll have a central part, which is really highlighted by those bookends. If you're reading the story of Matthew, for instance, there is a bookending of the ministry of Christ by two key bodies of material where he's teaching his disciples publicly. And the first of those concerns begins with the Beatitudes. The second is the woes that concludes his public ministry. After that, he's teaching his disciples privately that there's no longer the public ministry. Read those two things alongside each other and you realize they mirror each other. The Beatitudes are mirrored in the woes, one by one. And as you work through them, you'll begin to see Blessed are those who mourn. They devour widows' houses. There's a parallel there, and it helps to open each out. When you're reading through the structure and thinking about the structure of Scripture, it illumines things. For instance, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, there's a lot of material that might seem to be just miscellaneous once you've gone past chapter 5, you've read that passage concerning the Ten Commandments being declared again as they're preparing to enter into the land, and then you have this great big mass of material. And how do we understand that? Well, it helps to think about the way it is loosely structured according to the Ten Commandments. Read through it and you'll see each body of material follows each one of the Ten Commandments and it unpacks some of its meaning. Now, as it unpacks the meaning, it also helps us to understand what the Ten Commandments mean. I was thinking about this a while back and there are some questions that I had If I were writing the Ten Commandments, and being a very modern person, one of the things I'd be very concerned about is thinking about abuse of power. That's really a deep concern for us within the modern world. But yet, it doesn't seem that the Ten Commandments say much about that. But yet, when you see them being unpacked in the book of Deuteronomy, under not bearing false witness, there's a lot of emphasis upon abusive power structures. And how do those things fit together? Bearing false witness is using the power of the law against someone, using that advantage that you have through the law to bring someone else down. You're bearing false witness against your neighbor. And it expands out that concept and shows other ways in which power structures can be used as means of abuse. And now I would not have seen that had I not seen the connection between those two bodies of material. Within the structure of the text, we can often find clues as to the meaning. We're putting together the puzzle, and as we put together the puzzle and the picture will emerge as the pieces start to interlock, it's as we pay attention to the structure that these sorts of things emerge. If we read the story of Genesis, we can see many things within the story of Genesis that may seem just isolated tales. The story of Hagar and Ishmael, for instance. Hagar and Ishmael might seem to be collateral damage of Israel's failure, Abraham and Sarah's failure to learn faith and acting in the flesh and all these sorts of things. But yet, as we read that story through carefully, we can see its themes playing out in the rest of the story, in the story of Joseph. Joseph is someone who has an experience that mirrors that of Hagar and Ishmael in many respects. 
Hold the story of Hagar and Ishmael in chapter 21, alongside the story of the binding of Isaac in chapter 22, and you'll see they're two parallel frames. They belong together. The story of Ishmael and the story of Isaac, they're pairs, they're twins. In many ways, there are similarities between Ishmael and Isaac and John the Baptist and Jesus. And as you read through their stories, you'll see those similar themes are surprising. They're not what you expect. You don't expect Ishmael to have a continued presence on the pages of Scripture, but he does. And it helps you then to go back and read the story of Ishmael and think, maybe there's something more going on here. God tells Abraham in the passage before we see Hagar that his descendants will be strangers in a foreign land and will be afflicted. The next chapter you see Hagar, whose very name suggests the concept of the stranger, and then she is afflicted by Sarah, an Egyptian afflicted in the house of the Hebrews. Later on, Israel, the Hebrews, will be afflicted in the house of the Egyptians. And it's not before, not until they have entered into the, the experience of Hagar and learnt what that means, that they will be restored and the true meaning of Abraham's destiny will be realized. We see it in the story of Joseph as well. Joseph is the one, the child who's expelled from the family. He's the one who's taken down to Egypt with the Ishmaelites. He ends up in a house with an Egyptian mistress who mistreats him in many ways that remind us of Sarah. He has brought in this Hebrew slave to mock us, to laugh at us. That's what we see in the story of Ishmael. Ishmael mocks or laughs at Isaac. He's Isaacing. And then Sarah says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. There's a very similar story playing out here. And it's not until Israel enters into the experience of Hagar and Ishmael that they will be restored. Now that helps us to understand how God is concerned for the oppressed. It helps us to see why the story of Genesis 16 takes the pattern of a fall narrative. The woman taking and giving to her husband. The man listening to the voice of his wife. Now the point is not that it's wrong for men to listen to the voice of their wives. The point is that you're supposed to see the fall playing out again. And eyes being opened, shame, fleeing, the angel of the Lord coming and saying, why are you here, Hagar? And then giving her certain statements that remind us of what God said to Eve. There is a story playing out that reminds us of the fall that helps us to read what's going on. As we're reading through scripture then, the structure can lead us into the theology like a jigsaw puzzle. Repeated expressions or charged terminology can be a clue often. Where have we heard this before? So for instance, something like that key expression, here I am. It's the expression that is a key expression in the story of the binding of Isaac. And we see it occur on other occasions. Or the expression concerning the, concerning the promise of a child in the story of the promise of Isaac's birth. And then we go to a passage like Second Kings, chapter 4, and we read about the Shunammite. We read about the Shunammite's son. Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. We've read a story like that before. He said, call her. And when he called her, she stood in the doorway. Someone else stands in the doorway hearing the news of a son that will be given to her. 
And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Again, very similar story in the story of Sarah and the visitors in chapter 18 of Genesis. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Read that story through. You've had a parallel between these two narratives. So you're clued in, you're supposed to read these two stories alongside each other. And what happens in the story that follows? The child dies. And the woman to whom the child has been given goes to the prophet of God and there's all these themes playing out of the binding of Isaac. Lifting up her eyes, seeing something afar off, going to the mountain. And then she insists that the child be given back be given back to her. Now, that's not what we see in the story of Genesis, but it helps us to read the story of Genesis, to maybe consider what is Sarah's part in this story. You won't have necessarily, I mean, Abraham doesn't necessarily tell Sarah that he's going out with Isaac. What is she going to think when he comes back without Isaac? She's going to be absolutely devastated. She's going to feel wronged by Abraham and by God. What could her response be? Maybe she could have the faithful response of the Shunammite woman. And reading these stories alongside each other helps us to see the theology, but we're clued in originally with those key expressions often, those key details that put those things into some sort of correspondence with each other. So it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle, paying attention to those small details that match up when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, often you're thinking about the very tiny details on two pieces and thinking how those fit together. And then from those opens up the bigger picture. How do we have controls upon this sort of way of reading scripture? It often can seem very fanciful. And at times, when you read people, it is very fanciful. The connections are not necessarily there in the text. And that's a key thing. We need to trace these connections within the text itself. So there are points where you'll be clued in. Is there a possible connection here? So you hear the expression, here I am, in one text. And you think, that's interesting. I've heard that expression before. And it has a lot of weight in certain contexts. But not every context. Or you read a story of, had the recent experience of reading through Judges 14 and the story of, of Samson in that chapter. And there are lots of themes that seem to remind me of the story of Judah and Tamar. And I don't have a clue what to make of them. But they're clues that I'm just bearing in the back of my mind and seeing maybe what emerges from it. Timna is only mentioned in two passages as part of an extended narrative. In the passage of Genesis chapter 38 and in the passage of Judges chapter 14. At the beginning of Judges chapter 14, we have Samson going down to land of, he sees a daughter of the Philistines and he wants to marry that daughter of the Philistines in much the same way as Judah goes down and sees a daughter of the Canaanites and wants to marry the daughter of the Canaanites. Later on in the chapter, there are a number of other themes that might remind us of that story. A goat being sent to the woman, the woman being threatened with burning. And as you read through the story, how often do you find a goat being sent to a woman? Or someone being threatened with burning? Or the story of someone going down to Timnah? 
Or the story of someone seeing a daughter of the Canaanites or the Philistines and wanting to marry them. And in that particular order, maybe there's some connection. I do not have a clue what it is. But as we follow those sorts of themes, the themes accumulate, and maybe those two pieces go together, but I'm not sure exactly how. And as we read scripture, that will often be something that we experience. There's a degree of patience when you're making a puzzle. You're not hurrying things. There are certain pieces that you'll put in the same pile because you think they belong loosely together, but I'm not going to put them together quite, quite yet because there may be another piece that is part of this that I haven't yet found. And if you rush the process, often you'll have to deconstruct part of the puzzle that has been assembled too hastily. We need to pay attention to the proximity of associations. So if you're reading through the book of Luke and you see connections within the book of Luke itself, or between Luke and Acts, those are far more proximate associations than between the, Luke, the book of Luke and the book of Judges, for instance. But yet, as you're reading through the book of Luke, you can see that Luke uses a lot of 1 Samuel. And so the book of 1 Samuel is slightly closer than other books. So if you're reading 1 Chronicles, say, there's not such a presence of 1 Chronicles in Luke as there is of 1 Samuel. So think about questions of proximity. Also important to think about weighting of connections. How much weight do you put upon these things? An illustration I give is thinking of it like a tree. There is the trunk of the tree that bears the, that bears the weight of the tree, and then there's various branches, some really big branches. You could put the entirety of your weight upon some of these branches. They're connections and general themes and patterns and motifs that are really secure. You can throw all your weight against them. But there are others that are fairly tenuous. It's maybe they're skinny branches as you go out further. And other details that are maybe just filling out the tree is like leaves. And so we're not going to put all of our weight upon some of these details. We're going to leave some parts of the puzzle unassembled just putting them in a pile of similar pieces and saying, let's see what happens here. Whereas often when we do typology badly, we're rushing to put everything together. Let's hammer that piece into place and make sure that it fits, even if it doesn't quite belong. We want to make sure that every single connection that we can possibly draw is drawn, but yet some pieces do not belong together. And some pieces, when they're put together, they don't belong directly together. They are connected by other pieces. And so it's important to be patient with the text and always to prioritize attention. It's very much a practice of reading. When you're pr producing a puzzle, a lot of it is attention. The different ways that you can understand a piece in terms of its general color, in terms of the patterns of the specific details on that, in terms of the shape of the edges, in terms of the general form of the piece and the sort of genre piece it could fit into, the various other pieces that it might be associated with. And in the same way, when we're reading a passage of scripture, it can be like that experience of taking pieces of a puzzle. Another control upon this sort of reading is community. We read the text together. And often I find when I'm reading the text, I'll come up with a, a reading that seems a bit strange to me, and then I'll find that a number of other people have arrived at such a reading before me, independent of me. 
And maybe it's not such a strange reading after all. Maybe I'm seeing something that is actually within the text. And focusing upon objective features of the text is so important. So when we're reading about these patterns, we need to think about what is within the text itself. What is there within the text that I'm resting this claim upon? Or is this just something that I'm fancifully connecting between two things that may not be connected at all? We also need to think about the way that the scripture is, we, there is a, an experience of correction as we read through the history of the church. Many people have read this text before us, and they've read it from different contexts, and they see things that we might not see. Often you'll find you can read different commentators who will see things in different traditions. I've found, for instance, reading certain Old Testament texts, there are many Jewish commentators who will see things that Christian commentators don't. Because Christian commentators are often only working in typology between Old and New Testament. They're thinking about Christological readings only. So they don't recognize, they don't recognize the parallels between David and Jacob, or the parallels between um, various characters within Genesis, or the way in which the story of Joseph hangs over the story of the Exodus. They don't see that because they're not looking for the connections within the Old Testament story itself. They're not seeing the way that the story of, for instance, Sodom is a playing out of the story of the Passover. Two visitors being sent by the angel of the Lord to inspect a city and bring judgment upon it. An evening meal of unleavened bread, a threat at the doorway, judgment upon those without the doorway, and safety for those within being led by the angel of the Lord, taken by the hand, brought outside of the city, and brought to the mountain, and a pillar being established there, all these sorts of things. And then thinking about the way that that passage should be read alongside the passage that precedes it, the passage where Abraham sees these visitors approaching, he's sitting in the doorway of the tent, and he runs towards them, bows his face to the ground, and as he bows his face to the ground, he invites them in to share a feast. And then there's all this great act of hospitality. And then Sarah is made fruitful. And we read the story of hospitality yielding, leading to fruitfulness. In the story that follows, that's paralleled with it, you have the visitors going towards Sodom. Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. He bows his face to the ground, invites them in for a meal, but then hospitality goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. Abraham has said at the end of chapter 18, if there are 10, it will be saved for 10. Now, Lot, if you think about all the people within his family circle, there are 10 there. If Lot could practice true hospitality, Sodom would be saved. If the Sodomites would recognize Lot and his family and preserve them in their presence, they could be saved. But yet both fail. Lot offers his daughters to the mob, and the mob seek to remove Lot from their presence. And the story ends not with someone being made fruitful, but with Lot's wife being turned to salt, made barren. Now, these stories read alongside each other help us to see something about certain moral, moral themes, the themes of hospitality and fruitfulness, they also help us to understand the way that God is dealing within the larger history of these peoples. And these things 
are themes that read against the story of the Exodus, read against the stories paralleled with each other, open up as a result. Now, I started off reading the story of Acts chapter 2, the story of Pentecost, and within the next section, I want us to think very closely about the story of Pentecost. But for the time being, I want you to think about some of the details in the story of Pentecost that maybe struck you as we were reading through it. So for the next quarter of an hour or so, if you have any suggestions, let's throw them around and think about some of the ways in which this text exhibits features that maybe help us to understand the theology and some of the significance of what's taking place here. So feel free to shout out anything or to um, suggest, even talk among yourselves. Yes, the mighty rushing wind and themes of theophany. You have mighty rushing winds at various other points in scripture. And you have this filling of the house. That's a familiar thing that you find elsewhere. Can you think of some places where we see a filling of the house? Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. Any other examples? Pardon? Isaiah chapter 6. Exodus chapter 40, another example. Filling of the tabernacle. Yep, the chariot vision that you see at the beginning of Ezekiel. Psalm 104. Yes, that theme of the wind and the flames. I mean, the servants of God compared to flames, and then the flames coming down upon the apostles. Um, I think you do see some of that within the Psalms. Um, I think you more likely that you see a lot more typology within the narratives of the Psalms. Um, but when they're reading the text, I think they're based upon a certain understanding of the way that these themes fit together. So there are ways that certain stories will be told. For instance, a way that conflates the whole wilderness pe period between the two water crossings. Now that is based upon a certain way of reading the text that arises from typology, a recognition of the book-ended character of the time in the wilderness, and the way that that wilderness experience is a sort of liminal realm. And you see the same thing in Paul, when Paul talks about the, compar or the contrast between Sarah and Hagar, and between Ishmael and Isaac in Galatians chapter 4, that's based upon a typological reading of the text. He's not just taking these Fancy, making this fanciful imposition upon the text. It's based upon a very close reading of what we see in Genesis itself. And we often fail to read the text in that way, so we think, Paul's doing strange things here that we should not do. Do not attempt to do this at home. And sometimes, maybe you shouldn't attempt to do some of these things at home until you've learned how to read typology a bit more thoroughly, but we should be learning how to do this. What Paul is doing is based upon a principal reading of the text. Yep. Yes. Yes. And when we're reading Acts, it's really important to read it against the background of Luke, because Luke has so many of these themes that are paralleled. 
Can you think of some ways in which Luke, the structure of Luke, can help us to read Acts chapter 2? Think about some of the themes that the beginning of Luke has in common with the beginning of Acts. Again, we're trying to assemble the pieces of the puzzle here. We don't have to fit them together yet. But think about the edge pieces. Think about the corner pieces. Think about the pieces that have similar colors. Oh, we've got John baptizing with water from the beginning. Yep. John baptizing with water. Yes. There's very clear comparisons with that. Christ, at the baptism of John, the Spirit descends upon him as well. He's anointed by the Spirit for his ministry. Yes. Yes, the Feast of First Fruits was connected with the Feast of Pentecost. So you have, um, for, you count the seven sevens after that and the day that follows, you have the Feast of Pentecost. So those two feasts, the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Pentecost, connect together. We'll maybe look at that a bit more in the next session. Yes, they're, co they're connected feasts. So you have the Feast of Pentecost is counted from the Feast of First Fruits. Seven sevens and then the next, the next day. Yes. And there are key quotes from the prophets that within the context of Luke's ministry, or Luke's account of Jesus' ministry, are sort of theme texts. So, for instance, the passage from Isaiah 6 of the people just not perceiving. Um, at the very end of the book of Acts, you have that passage being declared as Paul is in Rome. It says, at the very end of the book, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. So it's a sort of theme text that helps us understand the whole of Luke Acts. You see that at the beginning of Christ's parable min ministry with the parables, and then you see it at the end. Other things about the structure. Yes. Yep. That's an interesting connection. I've not thought about that one. That's, that's worth thinking about. Think about some other connections that we might think about the story of Zechariah. Where are some Old Testament ways, that, what are some Old Testament ways in which we can frame the story of the beginning of Luke and maybe the beginning of Acts? Think about an example of that. I think that's correct, yeah. I think what we also see is that connection between the themes of priesthood at the beginning of both books. I think that's an important thing to point out. What could we maybe see in the story of First Samuel that helps us to understand the beginning of Luke? Yes, the Magnificat. Other connections?
The promise given to Abraham. Now that's very clearly within um, Zachariah's speech upon the birth of John. We also see it very clearly in the gift of the Spirit, which is seen as the blessing of Abraham. I think there are similarities there. I think we have. I mean, you can think about transitions between people as well. Moses is the one who sets up the covenant that's associated with the law, and Samuel is the one who sets up the kingdom. So there are some parallels there. So you read the beginning of Samuel's life, he grows in wisdom and he grows in stature, and these sorts of, that's the same sort of expressions that we see of John the Baptist and of Christ. Samuel may be like um, John the Baptist, who's the one who prepares the way for the king that follows. Other connections? Yes, we'll get into that later on. Particularly connections with um, Luke, 1 Samuel, and Acts. Some of those cluster of connections. Barren women, yep. You, you also see women praying in temples. Think about the story at the beginning of, uh, you have prayer in temples, you have the story of Zechariah. Could you maybe read the story of Zechariah alongside the story of Eli? Someone, a priest who lacks perception. And then when you think about the theme of the priest who lacks perception, maybe that helps you to think a bit more about Acts. What does Eli think that Hannah is doing when she's praying? He thinks that she's engaged in drunken speech. And in the beginning of Acts, we see that mistaking the speech of the apostles for drunk and the disciples for drunken speech helps us maybe to bring those two texts alongside each other. Yes. And in Luke 6, he talks about the, diff the new wine that bursts the old wineskins. Can maybe be another connection we think about in Luke. Other connections, what are some key themes that we see at the beginning of Luke's Gospel beyond, um, or think about some other events at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. We thought about Zechariah in the temple, and we thought about some other things there. What, how can you fill out other episodes that there might be comparisons with? Yes. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, what some have called the sort of Marian Pentecost. That the Holy Spirit descends upon Mary and, the, and Christ is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in Mary. That maybe helps us to understand the meaning of what happens to the church. And it's not an accident then, I believe, that we have Mary mentioned among the disciples explicitly at the beginning of the Count of Pentecost. Where we read, um, see. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, etc. And all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. We don't really see references to Mary after that, but she's explicitly mentioned among the group here. Perhaps the English and the 
Yep. Yes. I, I think you also see that at the very end of Luke, the very end of Luke, you have they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Think about the characters of Simeon and Anna. Simeon who declares the one who has come. In many ways, like Peter, there's one other character called Simeon in Luke's corpus, and that's Peter in chapter 15 of Acts, he's described as Simeon. You might also think about Anna. Anna, Hannah, they're the same, it's the same name. Hannah is praying constantly in the temple. It's, she represents Israel. She's a widow of 84 years old, 7 times 12, representing Israel, praying in the temple. And they're constantly praying in the temple priests in the temple area at the beginning of Acts. Any other connections that you can think of? Yep. And you see that in the chapters that follow as well, the way that they're amazed at the teaching of the apostles are oh, these. Um, these aren't scribes, these aren't learned men, and they saw that they, were, they had been with Jesus. So, one from the OT from Exodus is the 3,000 souls. Those, yep. The Levites killed 3,000 when they disobeyed, and now it's here. And the way that they are saved is also they are cut to the heart. Why describe it that way? Seems to be a connection there. But focusing particularly on Luke, Acts, 1 Samuel, was. Some of the other connections that you might see. Yes. 40 days. Can you think of another 40 days at the beginning of Jesus' life? There's a 40 day period prior to that. Prior to the forty days in the wilderness, in the book of Act, in the book of Luke, when is Jesus presented in the temple? Forty days after his birth. That's when the presentation occurs. Jesus enters the heavenly temple forty days after his resurrection. Now, think about that. The parallels that we have between Christ's birth and his death and resurrection. His birth is connected with him being wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. His death, wrapped in linen garments, laid in a tomb. There's a Mary and a Joseph at the beginning of his life. There's a Mary and Joseph at the end of his life and his death and resurrection. And these, I think, help to unpack things a bit more. Christ's death and resurrection is a new birth. It's a birth into the age of the new creation. And so when we think about themes of new birth, we're focusing upon something that occurred in Christ. And the parallels within the structure of Luke and Acts help us to read that. And so when you read the story of Christ being presented in the temple, read that alongside the story of Christ ascending and the church going into the temple and preparing for Pentecost, and maybe you'll see some parallels. Think about the emphasis at the beginning of Luke upon the work of the Spirit, people being filled with the Spirit. If you read the description of Simeon, Jesus 
is presented in the temple. And we see Simeon described. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his hands and blessed God and said, etc. Now, there is such an emphasis upon the Spirit in the life of Simeon that I believe he presents us with a sort of foreshadowing of what happens later on with the church as it declares Christ in the temple context. Now, we're going to take a break now. We'll get back to some of these themes of Pentecost and cast our net a bit wider. But over the break, think about some of the ways in which you may see maybe other connections within Luke, Acts, and 1 Samuel, and maybe some other ones that we might explore later on. So we focused upon one particular aspect of the background of Pentecost in the story of Luke, and also in the background of 1 Samuel for the story of Luke. I want us to spread our nets a bit wider now and think about other parts of Scripture that might help to open this up. So we've already mentioned a few. Chris mentioned Numbers chapter 11. And then you mentioned um, the story of Sinai and the Levites killing 3,000. So let's focus upon those first. Let's try and unpack those. First of all, Sinai. What can we see that connects Sinai with Pentecost? And what I want us to do within this session is think toward application. So think about typology as interpretation of the text, that which helps us to read the text's meaning. Think about typology as a manifestation of Scripture's unity and character. Think about typology as theology, and then how it leads to application. So, Exodus and the story of Sinai and the story of Pentecost. What can we see? Israel had just rejected Moses and then now Israel had just rejected Moses. Yes. The rejection of Moses, the rejection of Christ. Sinai is the first Pentecost. If you read through the story of um, Exodus, there are hints of a connection between Sinai and the event of Pentecost. The timing of it seems to occur similar sort of period. Now, if you look a bit closer, there may be other hints. So the connection between, we'll look into this perhaps later, the connection between the Feast of Jubilee, which is another Pentecost-type thing, but in terms of years, begins with the blowing of a ram's horn. And that is connected with the day of Pentecost. And or it's connected with the events of Sinai. So maybe there are connections to be drawn there too. And Israel celebrated Pentecost as the feast of the giving of the law. So when this occurs, there is already a significance that Pentecost has as an agricultural feast, but also as an event commemorating the gift of the law. Can fill that out a bit more or think about some other connections? So in Leviticus chapter 23, we have a number of feasts that are connected together. We have the Feast of the Sabbath at the very beginning, and other feasts that arise out from that. Feast of Passover, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, that is. When we think about the Feast of 
first fruits, it follows into the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Passover or the Feast of Pentecost, rather. You count the Feast of Pentecost from the Feast of First Fruits. Now, the First Fruits involve a wave offering of an omer of um, barley to God. There are two different harvests that are being celebrated here. There's the har- barley harvest, the earlier harvest, and then the later harvest of the wheat, which is connected with Pentecost. Pentecost has something different. Pentecost has not just an omer of barley, but it has two loaves filled with leaven that are presented to God. And maybe unpack that a bit more at some later point, but thinking more upon Sinai right now. Any other connections? Moses intercedes for the people. Now, we might also think earlier on, what happens? Moses, the leader of the people, ascends to God's presence and then delivers the law to the people. And so there's a similar pattern of ascension and descent of God's revelation and truth. Yep. There's a theophanic or a divine manifestation of his presence upon Sinai. God descends upon the mountain. Yep. The movement from priest to prophet, a kingdom of priests, the royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is something we are. We are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. We're also a people of prophets. When you read the passage, we'll think a bit more about Numbers 11, and that will help us think about the prophetic background. But at Sinai, they are established as a people who are priestly people. And we saw the connection between the Levites and the slaying of the 3,000, after which they're set apart for a blessing, and then the church and the disciples cutting 3,000 people to the heart with the word of God. There is a setting apart of a new priesthood here, the priesthood of the people of God as they bear witness to Christ. What else happens at Sinai? What else is given at Sinai? The law is given at Sinai. So the law and the Spirit are things that go together within the New Testament. The law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. The law in the Old Covenant brought death. It was a law written on tablets of stone that the people were alienated from. Their hearts were hard and so they could not receive it. And the law of the Spirit of life is the law written upon the heart. The law written upon tablets of flesh. And the law that is no longer just in the middle of the people in the tent in the box but it's in the middle of our hearts. It's the new covenant promise that God would write his law upon his people so that people who are formerly rebellious and resistant to the law would obey it from the heart. Now, that connects those two events as one fulfills the events of Pentecost, fulfill what the law was always looking towards. The law could not bring life, but Pentecost gives the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life in Christ, so that we might fulfill the law. And those themes, as those events are connected together, help us to see that the law spirit theme that Paul is dealing with in his epistles is not something he's just snatched from some weird realm in his theological imagination. This is an interpretation of what Pentecost means. Anything else? Meeting in an upper room or a mountain? Meeting in an upper room, yeah. Going up to God's presence. You have in the elders of the people celebrating a meal before God's presence as they see that um, God's throne, as it were, above them. 
What else is given at Sinai? We've got the law. What else is given at Sinai? The tabernacle. The people are given the plans for this building. And they're given gifts of the Spirit by which they will build it. Bezalel given the spiritual gift of embroidery, which is maybe a gift that has ceased, but <laughs> God, God gives his gifts for the purpose of building his house. And the gifts of the Spirit are the means by which God is going to build this place for his presence. As we read through the story of Acts, what are some ways in which we can see that tabernacle theme playing out there? What is the church? What are the people of God? They're the temple of God. At the very end of the book of Exodus, we read in chapter 40, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The filling of the house in which they meet is similar to the filling of the tabernacle, the filling of the temple. It's like the filling of the temple when Isaiah goes into it and it's filled with the glory of God. This is God's presence coming to his house. But the house is not primarily the upper room. The house is the people. And this is, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. What other things do we see within the tabernacle? Think of the lampstand. The lampstand has the oil upon it and then it's used to set a light. It's a, it represents God's light, God's lamp within the world, among other things, like a burning bush, perhaps. The church is described as a lampstand in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, God lights the lampstand. Little flames upon all these people's heads. We are the lampstand. God is establishing his tabernacle. So we've got a number of different themes. We have the gift of the law, we have the establishment of the priesthood, and we have the establishment of a house for God's presence. Let's think about a different background now. Let's think about Numbers chapter 11 which Chris mentioned earlier. Numbers chapter 11 is a passage that when you read through it, it should instantly strike you as having some interesting similarities. Then the Lord said to Moses, beginning reading at verse 16, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it alone, yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? Etc. So Moses went, beginning reading again at verse 24, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered seventy men of the elders of the people 
and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the seventy elders. And as soon as the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and another named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant's assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Now how does that passage help us to read the story of Pentecost? Yes, would that all of God's people were prophets, that God would put his spirit upon them. What is the verse that is quoted, or the passage that is quoted by Peter in the sermon, the first passage? It's from Joel chapter 2. If you look at Joel chapter 2, it picks up the themes of Moses' words. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. God is going to give his spirit to all his people. This is a change. And this is also something that fulfills the great wish of Moses that the people would all have the spirit. And so we can trace Numbers 11 to Acts chapter 2 through Joel chapter 2. Any other ways in which it helps us to interpret the meaning of what's taking place there? The next story after the quail is the um, Miriam and Judith about the Tephora. No, that's the story. The wife of. Yes. So we've got a dispute about this woman being in the Torah, but she's a do you want to unpack that a bit more? Well, it seems that a lot of the controversy in Acts following yes. this incident is, is a controversy between Gentiles and Jews. That's a very good point. I hadn't really thought about that before. There are people, also people like Eldad and Medad that aren't in the original company and experience a Pentecost-like event in distinction from the other company. So you have Eldad and Medad and you have the dispute concerning Moses' wife. Yep. So the presence of the tent of meeting outside the camp, it's not within the center of the camp, there's a movement of the center of God's presence from the temple to this new temple that's being established. And maybe there's a connection there. Anything else? The next story of the Interesting. Yeah, I've not, I've not thought about that one. I have to give that a bit more thought. Again, this is a piece that looks interesting. We don't know where it fits yet. Just put it out there and think about it a while. You don't have to put it in, but there is a way in which reflecting upon that may open out things that we would not have seen otherwise. It's very much how we assemble these things. We're 
just paying attention primarily at this point. Along that same line, is there a context between uh, meat and having and being really ungrateful for what they were receiving, and then uh, day by day, uh, they receive the, oh, I guess it just says food, with glad and generous hearts. So yes. That might be a connection but, or contrast between the gratitude and the thanksgiving that characterizes the church and the ungratefulness and the complaining that characterizes Israel. And there are places where we have that sort of wind being connected with deeper symbolism. So, for instance, in the Plague of Locusts, that the Plague of Locusts is sent away by a wind blowing the locusts out of the land into the Red Sea. It's playing out the story of Israel that will happen later. So maybe there's something there as well. Think about the characters of Moses and the character of Christ and what this maybe teaches about the relationship between the church and Christ and how does that help us to read that? It's better that I go. It's in my spirit. But there's a sense in which sending the Spirit to us is a better thing than having Christ himself with us. That Christ's Spirit is given to his people as a means by which they continue his mission. They act in his name. They're bearing not just this, um, they're not just acting in their own authority, but they're bearing the Spirit of the leader of the people. So that 70 elders bear Moses' Spirit. We bear the Spirit of Christ. And so at Pentecost, Christ is giving his spirit to his people, so that like the 70 elders who act in Moses' name, we might act in his name. Is there anything, so Luke sent out the 72, and I don't know if there's, I don't know if that's in any of the others. Yeah. Uh, so we have numbers where he's got 70 elders, we've got Luke. And then the two others, Sem- Eldad and Medad. Right, which I'm, which I'm thinking is 72, and then you have in Luke 10. I don't know if there's, I don't think there's 70 necessarily here. Or does the translation varies. Other. So some have 70, some have 72. Again, <laughs> do we include Eldad and Medad in the number or not? It's an interesting question. When we read those details, that 70 elders, the 70 elders were maybe connected with the 70 nations, also connected with the ruling Sanhedrin of Israel. And there are symbolic, significant numbers earlier on. Jesus calls 12 apostles, sends out 70 disciples. He's reconstituting Israel. And at the beginning of the account of the meeting in the upper room, there are 120 disciples, 12 times 10. So it's a formation of Israel. I want us to move on to something a bit different. Think about the story of, let's see, the story of Babel and the background that we can see there. Now, the story of Babel is perhaps the first thing that we think about as Old Testament background for the story of Pentecost. What are some of the ways in which that opens up Pentecost? Yep. 
Yes, let us go down. What are they trying to do? They're trying to make a name for themselves. And how are they trying to do that? They're constructing this edifice, or actually they're constructing two things. They're constructing a tower and they're constructing a city. The city is a means by which you gather together all of humanity in a single place, and the tower is the means by which you create a conduit between heaven and earth. And so there are two things that they're trying to build. They're trying to unite heaven and earth and have power in that realm and maybe protect themselves from God's judgment. They're also trying to bring together humanity. And that project is frustrated by God coming down in judgment. He scatters them as a result of their confused languages, and the tower project is abandoned. Now, what happens against the backdrop of the story of Babel? The call of Abraham. What happens immediately after the story of Babel is the formation of a people through a blessing. And so all the nations being formed as a result of a curse, a judgment, now you have a formation of people through a blessing. And as you read that story through, you'll see many of the themes of Babel playing out. That God will make his name great. His name will be a blessing. Think about another occasion where there is something connecting heaven and earth. Where can you think of that in the story of Genesis? Jacob's ladder. He gathers together stones. They gather together bricks. There's a similarity there. And maybe we're supposed to recognize that God is forming a conduit between heaven and earth. He's uniting those two realms in the family of Abraham and his descendants. As we read through the story of Scripture, we can see this developing in various ways. That God is going to gather his people together through the blessing of Abraham. And he's going to unite heaven and earth through the blessing of Abraham. And when we get to Acts chapter 2, and we think about the meaning of the gift of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit is the fulfillment of the reason why God called Abraham in the first place. And so when Paul talks about the gift of the Spirit, he can talk about the Spirit as the promise given to Abraham. It's not explicit that the Spirit is the promise given to Abraham, but yet in Galatians, and you put these things together, it makes perfect sense. That's how the problem that Abraham was called to address is resolved by the gift of the Spirit that unites heaven to earth and unites humanity to humanity. Any other things? Yes. Yes, again we see this attempt to grasp a power, in many ways similar to the event of the fall. This attempt to grasp at what was not given, and we see that in part that the story of Babel begins not with the decision to build a city in the town. It begins with the development of a new technology. It begins with the development of the power to fire bricks and to form these bricks that give you the power to construct these mighty cities and edifices. And out of that sense of a newfound power comes a newfound hubris, and that desire to reach up to heaven itself. 
And God's work in bringing down that tower is in part frustrating man's hubris until the time has come that they should be given that. But it's given in a different form. What are some of the differences between the situation that exists prior to Babel and what they're trying to achieve through Babel and what God gives at Pentecost? The contrast at this point. Yes. They gather together at Babel. All, all these different nations, particularly under the leadership of Nimrod, presumably. And they're gathering together and they're forming one people of one lip and one tongue. Now, one lip and one tongue, maybe those terms are different. James Jordan has suggested that as we look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, that God will restore a pure lip to the peoples. The point being that a lip is connected with confession, with faith. So if you have a pure lip, you're worshipping God faithfully. It's not primarily about your language, but it's about the orientation of your language, as it were, being ordered towards God. And so God is going to restore the lip of the people, and God's going to restore the language. of God's going to deal with the languages of the people, but not by bringing them together in one single language, so everyone speaks Hebrew, for instance, but in orienting every single one of these multitude of languages towards him, declaring the glorious works of God. And so the unity of Pentecost is not found in a single language, but in a common lip in many different languages. What are some ways in which we see judgment in Pentecost? Not at Babel, at Pentecost. Yep, there's a cutting of God's word, and we've connected that to the story of the Levites. The 3,000 that were cut by the swords of the Levites, 3,000 cut to the heart by the ministry of the apostles. Think about another connection with the story of Babel. How does judgment appear at Babel? Yes. Yes. They're not able to understand the speech. They think that they are just speaking drunken words. And God is declaring the great work of God is occurring in their presence. This is the fulfillment of the entire covenant purpose. That Abraham, the reason why Abraham was called, the story that leads you from Babel onwards, God setting things right. And here it comes to its climax, and they think it's drunken speech. There's a confusion of their perception of language at this point. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 28, you have some of the background for this that is alluded to in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 14. i find the passage. Verse 7, verse 7 following. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong wine, with strong drink, and are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, 
here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. To whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear, and the word of God will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. It's a story of God judging his people by their failure to understand speech. They fail to hear what God is saying to them, and they are characterized by drunkenness. But yet it's as if with people with drunken lips, people who are speaking a barbarian tongue, that he will speak to them in judgment. God takes all these different nations, speaking with their strange tongues, their strange dialects, their clumsy forms of speech, and he speaks to this people at the very heart of his people in Jerusalem, the scribal class, the priestly class, the people at the very heart of Israel, and they fail to perceive. They are like the drunken people described in Isaiah. And so we've seen in the story of Babel another aspect of the background for the story of Pentecost. Now, in the Matins this morning, we read another passage, a passage concerning the ascension of Elijah. How does that help us to read what happens at Pentecost? Yes, there is a continuation of the ministry of the prophet. All that Jesus began both to do and teach, we are told of, at the beginning of Acts, he refers back to his previous book of Luke that way. And now there's a new account of what he's continuing to do and teach through his disciples. There's a continuation of the ministry. Now, if we look at 1 Kings, we'll see that Elijah is given a commission. And he's told to do a few key tasks in 1 Kings chapter 19, I think. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael, Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, Elijah does not do those things. He only does one of them. He only anoints Elisha to continue as prophet in his place. The other things, Elisha does. Elisha continues the ministry of Elijah. He completes and brings to its true telos the ministry of Elisha. We see that in a similar way in the beginning of Luke, that there are two ministries. There's the ministry of the desert prophet, and there's the ministry of the land prophet. There's a ministry of John the Baptist who's associated with the wilderness. This voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The man who eats, um, who eats locusts and wild honey, the man dressed in a garment that reminds you of John the Baptist. It's the way, or reminds you of Elijah. It's the way Elijah is described in 2 Kings chapter 1. Where did they change over, as it were? 
the ministry of one passing to the next, the banks of the Jordan. The banks of the Jordan is the place where the ministry of the desert prophet of Moses passed to the land prophet, the one who took over the land, of Joshua. And in Christ's ministry, we see the stories of Elijah and Elisha playing in the background. Who is the Elijah that was to come? John the Baptist. Jesus talks about these two things that were involved in John the Baptist and the story of John the Baptist, or the story of Elijah and the story of Elisha. He talks about the healing of the widow's son by Elijah, the raising of the widow's son. He talks about the way in which the um, Naaman the Syrian is healed in the case of Elisha. As you go through Jesus' ministry in Luke, both of those themes are picked up. Jesus raises the widow's son and he helps the centurion's servant, the foreign um, military official. And so there are connections with the ministry of Christ and the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Christ is the one who performs food multiplication, just as Elisha does. Elisha multiplies food, Christ multiplies food and feeds a multitude with it. So these stories help us to understand the broader pattern of what's taking place. Think about the connection between what happens to Elijah and what happens to Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2. Any thoughts on that? Elijah's ascension is Elisha's Pentecost. Christ tells his disciples at the end of the book of Luke that they will be clothed with power from on high. A mantle will fall upon them and they will continue the ministry of Christ in the power of the Spirit acting in his name as they go out into the world. And so this background helps us to understand the succession motif. There are many other ways in which we might think of prophetic themes in the story of Christ. Prophets were the ones who bore the word of God like fire within them. The prophet's words ascended like fire to God and went out like consuming fire to the people. Ezekiel and others have the language of fire associated with the word of God, the fire burning within them, the lips that have to be cleansed with a coal from the altar, a burning coal. The fire of the prophet is lips set aflame so that their words may ascend to God and their words might go out and burn the stubble. This is the word of God placed within us as the fire descends upon the people at Pentecost. As it descends upon them, it sets their witness aflame so that they might, like the people mentioned, the prophets mentioned in Revelation 11, fire might come out of their mouths. We are people who should have burning tongues. Did it not our hearts burn within us when we heard his word on the way? Our hearts should burn within us and that word should come out like fire. This is, again, an understanding that develops from out of the text as we focus upon these parallels. We might think about the connections with the story of creation, loose connections of God breathing his spirit into man, forming a new humanity. God breathes into this new man, this new humanity, and raises up this humanity so that they might act and walk and act in his name within the world. A new humanity, a new Adam. You might think about it against the background of Ezekiel 37, 
the Spirit of God blowing upon this army of Israel that is laid like whitened bones littering the surface of the valley. And God blows into them and prophesies to them and they come alive and there's a new people formed. We can also think about other more obscure background. Think about the story of Saul. When Saul is established for the kingdom, he is told that he will be given three signs. He will meet some people who will say that the donkeys of his father have been found. He will meet some people with bread, wine, and a goat. And he will meet some people with... He will meet some prophets coming down from the high place, playing musical instruments, and then the Spirit of God will come upon him and he will become a new man. At the end of Luke, we have a series of events that Jesus says will happen to his disciples if they follow his instructions. They will go into the village and they will find there a donkey cult, and the donkeys have been found. They will go into the city and they will follow a man bearing a pitcher of water and he will lead them up to the place where they will celebrate the Passover. There will be bread and wine and there will be a Passover animal, which is either a lamb or a goat. And then they are told they will wait in Jerusalem and then the Spirit of God will descend upon them. They will be anointed with power from the high. They will become new people. God is establishing a kingdom. At Luke, in Luke's Gospel, as he speaks to his disciples in the upper room, he declares that he is giving them a kingdom and that they will sit on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. That's exactly what Samuel says to Saul in the book of 1 Samuel. So drawing these themes together, we see that God is establishing a kingdom. He's anointing people who will act not just as a priesthood, not just as prophets, but also as kings, people who will rule in his name. Think also about the background of First Kings. Now, I've read the story of the death of Judas many times in both Matthew and Acts' account. And it's, there are differences between those accounts that make us wonder, how, can these things be harmonized? I believe they can be harmonized, but I believe they're told differently to draw our attention to different backgrounds. When you read the story of Matthew, the story of the death of Judas is described as taking, is told at the point of time straight after he regrets what he has done, before Christ has died. It's told at that point for a reason, I believe. He is like Ahithophel, the one who gives counsel to the enemies of King David. And then he goes out, when he realizes what he has done, he go and re regrets what he has done. He goes out and he hangs himself. There is a parallel in that case, and it helps us all to realize what Christ is doing. Christ is like Absalom, the rebellious son of David who's hanging on the tree. But Christ is bearing the consequences of the Davidic house, of what they have done. The sin of David and his ancestors and his descendants. And Christ is hanging on that tree, bearing all that wrath, he is bearing the position of the rebellious son. And now we see that he, having borne that, is raised up to sit at God's right hand. The difference in Acts chapter 1 in the description of the death of Judas, I think, is instructive. There's a different background that we are being, that we're called to attend to. At the beginning of 1 Kings, we have David still around. David is old, he's giving instructions to Solomon about the establishment of his realm, and he tells him certain people that need to be removed from office, certain people that need to be put in place. Joab 
is the son of Zeruiah is one of those men. And we see in his story a background for Judas. Joab is a man who betrays someone with a kiss. He kisses Amasa, and when he's kissing Amasa, he stabs him in the gut, and his entrails come out, and he's placed in a field, and he bleeds out in the field, and people pass by, and they wonder at his body. And so we see that he's judged in 1 Kings chapter, in 1 Kings chapter 2 on account of that. He's buried in his wilderness house, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, takes his place, takes his office. The verses that are quoted from the Psalms in Acts chapter 1, let his house be made desolate, let another take his office. And the description of the death of Judas mirrors the way that Joab's victim died. There's a background being referred to there. And then when we think about that picture expanding a bit more, what happens immediately afterwards? Solomon has a dream and is given wisdom by which to rule. God gives his people the spirit of Christ so that we would know the mind of Christ, that we would have wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil, by which to act as his kingly representatives within the world. God is establishing a kingdom. What other connections can we see? We can see maybe the, the emphasis upon the fiery word. We've talked about the prophets, that they bear this word within. We are a people defined by prayer. The priest is someone who is a person of sword and flame. The prophet is someone who's even more defined by flame, the word within them. The word that maybe is connected with the altar of incense, the prayers that arise to God's presence. And then the word that goes out as fire to the people and that consumes and tests and purifies. The people of God then, as we arrive at the application of these things, we can follow the channels of the text and see where they lead us to. We are a people formed of many different nations and languages, many different backgrounds, brought together as God has overcome the barrier between people. That barrier is not a false human unity found through technological ingenuity and human systems of government. It's not formed around great kings like Nimrod. It's formed around Jesus Christ. It's formed around the unity between heaven and earth, the conduit between heaven and earth. Christ descends to earth. He comes to tabernacle among us. The Spirit descends upon Christ at his baptism. He talks to Nathaniel of hereafter you'll see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He is Jacob's ladder. There is a full invasion party. Christ is the beachhead of God's presence upon earth. And as we think about Christ in that context, the whole of heaven and earth are being placed in communion with each other. And that is taking place within this new body of people that are formed within the church. The Spirit descending as Christ has ascended into God's presence. It's the uplink. We're connected. And so at this point, we have communion with God. And that is what the church is. It's a realm where we can speak to God, where we can come before his throne, where we have communion. It's a realm defined by prayer. In the book of Luke, 
Whereas the other Gospels don't focus so much upon it. Before every key event in Jesus' ministry, it mentions him being in prayer. It's when he's in prayer that the Spirit descends upon him at his baptism. He prays before he sends, chooses the 12 disciples. He prays as the Spirit is he's transfigured on the mount. And in all these other occasions, it's prayer that is emphasized. They are praying in the temple, as Anna prayed in the temple. And then the Spirit comes upon them. They become a people of empowered prayer. That is who we should be. We should be people of wisdom, like Solomon was given the spirit of wisdom to rule. We should be people who are those who bear the signs of the kingdom out into the world, as those three signs that were given to Saul. Later on, as we read in 1 Samuel, David is sent to Saul. What is he sent with? He's sent with a donkey, with bread, with wine, a goat, a musical instrument, and the means by which the spirit that is troubling Saul will be removed from him and a new spirit will come upon him. David bears the signs of the kingdom. Christ gives the signs of the kingdom to his people. Now we often think that our power is found in capitals of nations, in the halls of power, in presidents and in kings. But yet the power of the people of God is found in our access to the one who sits at God's right hand, to David's greater son, to the fact that we are his people, and like the people who gathered around David in the cave of Adullam, in the cave of Adullam, they are raised up to sit around him on his throne as his, um, the people who are part of his court. So we are the people who are part of Christ's court. As Moses placed as the spirit of Moses was placed upon the 70 elders, so the spirit of Christ is placed upon us so that we might act in the name of Jesus Christ. As you read through the book of Acts, all these things are being done in the name of Jesus Christ by the spirit of Christ, not in their own name and authority. We are, like Elijah and Elisha, the ones who continue what to start being started in the ministry of Christ. We bring it to its fulfillment as he acts through and in us. Christ was baptized by the Spirit at the beginning of Luke. The Spirit descended upon him as a dove. The Spirit descending upon us as fire continues that. We act as those who have been anointed, as Christ has been anointed. And in our baptisms, that's one of the things that baptism declares. It declares the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It declares the baptism of us as Christ himself has been baptized. We continue what he has started. We are people who are defined not by a tablet of st tablets of stone, but by law written on our hearts. We are people who have internalized the word of God. So when we're reading the word of God here, we're learning something about the Word of God within the Word of God. It's a bit meta, but it's the way that we learn about Scripture by paying attention to what Scripture says about itself. That the Word is not just something that should be understood as a book bound between two covers. It's the living voice of God. It's a voice that exceeds anything that two covers can contain. It's a voice that shapes kingdoms. It's a voice that enters into hearts and writes a new principle upon them. It's a voice that comes out of people who have ingested that word. And that word comes out like fiery flame, judging the nations 
and purifying the peoples. It's a word that declares forgiveness and deliverance. Now, I mentioned earlier on this connection between Pentecost and Jubilee. What does Jesus' ministry begin with? A declaration of the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee. The ministry of the disciples begins at Pentecost, seven times seven plus one, both cases. We are declaring a year of Jubilee. There's a concern for the poor, the people who are in need. It's good news to the poor. What do you see in the emphasis upon Pentecost in Leviticus chapter 23? In Leviticus chapter 23, you see a concern for the poor. You see the fact that Feast of Weeks, you shall not, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The feast of the event of Jubilee is a similar sort of thing. The people being restored to the land that has been taken from them. It's a concern for the poor. What happens at Pentecost as well? You celebrate a feast with all the people. You invite in the Levite, you invite in the stranger, you invite in the poor. You celebrate this mighty feast and enjoy the common property that God has given you within the land of inheritance. It follows from the Feast of Firstfruits. The Feast of Firstfruits, an omer of barley is presented. Why an omer? An omer, I believe, in, because it's connected with the manna. The omer was the measure that they had each day. And so the meaning of the manna is continued in the barley. When they come into the land, they're not to forget the message of the manna, the message that God will give them what they need and that everyone should have enough. And that's the message that we see being played out in the Feast of Firstfruits. It's what we see being played out in the Feast of Pentecost. It's what we see happening in the Feast of Jubilee. And then when we read Acts 2, we see the way the poor are provided for, the way that they give so that everyone has enough. We are a people that fulfill God's concern for the poor. We, ex we declare the acceptable year of the Lord, but we also declare that in a way that shows concern and hospitality for those in need. These are all lessons that can arise from close attention to the text itself. Not from imposing our meanings upon it, but from looking more closely at the background against which its meaning comes forth. Now, I have to stop at this point. There's a lot more that we could talk about in the case of Pentecost. We could talk about the way that the Trinitarian themes are illuminated within that. The Son, the Father, the promise of the Father, and the Spirit. We see those things coming to the foreground in the baptism of Christ, in the transfiguration, in these key events in his ministry, in the Great Commission, and now also in Pentecost. And we could talk about other themes from the Old Testament. We could talk about the ways that it fits in with specific prophetic callings, for instance. God preparing the lips of the prophet. But we don't have time for that. We have some time for questions now. Do you have any comments as well that you'd like to share? I'm just curious, so taking you talk about uh, this contrast between Sodom and Lot and Abraham. So using that in their background, how do we understand the text in um, Judges about the, uh, the Gibeah. concubine? Yeah, Gibeah. Yeah. There are, there are some interesting aspects of background in the story of Gibeah. Um, it begins with the story of going to the concubine's father and tarrying there for, it seems, a long time. Keep saying, tarry a bit more. 
wait a bit longer. Don't go today, go tomorrow. It reminds us of the story of Jacob and Laban, perhaps. And so there's part of that background. Also the story, the tragic story of Rachel is playing in the background. It's near the site of her death. And what happens as a result of that is the near death of the tribe of Benjamin, her son. Now, there are other things that help us when we think about the connections, as you mentioned, between Sodom and Gibeah, that there are very similar events taking place. And reading those things alongside each other, we see that Israel has become like the Canaanite cities that were destroyed. They are about to suffer a similar devastating judgment upon them. And so again, this is how we can use the background and symmetries of the text to think about the meaning. If we read further on, there are many details of that text that are perplexing. The story of Gibeah is told differently by the Levite when he tells the people in a way that seems to be self-exculpatory. He doesn't really speak about his true part in it and the ugly things that he has done. We can think about the connections between the events of sending out the different parts of the body of the concubine. And later on, the story of Saul, when he cuts up, up the cow and sends it out to the, nation, to the various parts of the nation, that the people are formed in that way. Now, if you read the story of Rachel again, I think Rachel's story is a very important part of Old Testament background. Rachel's tears really frame her story. She's someone who you first meet in an act of weeping. Jacob meets her, and he kisses her, and he weeps. Now, it seems to be tears of joy, but there's a tragedy that stalks Rachel throughout her story. And Rachel's story, she is the death sentence declared upon her after Laban pursues. Now, that's a very tragic event that foreshadows what will happen when she dies in birth with Benjamin. And then Joseph being taken later on. Joseph, his tokens of his death, the bloody garments, what would you have seen if she got up? Bloody garments. And the Tarov Taraf, this statement that is found by, um, by Jacob after he sees that, my son is surely torn or whatever, that, that statement is something that recalls the teraphim. These are stories that are connected together, and you see this thread of the suffering and the tragedy of Rachel. And then it leads through the prophets. In Jeremiah, Rachel weeping for her children, they are no more. She almost lost Joseph. She almost lost Benjamin. And then you have her weeping for seeking restoration. You find a similar thing in Micah. In Micah chapter 4, Migdalida, where they went to after the death of Rachel in chapter 35 of Genesis. You have a reference to Bethlehem Ephrath. They reach Bethlehem Ephrath, and the child is born there. That was on the way there, the child that gave birth to the first kings of Israel was born. The tragedy of Benjamin, and now they reach Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, this new king will be born, this new king that will bring the destiny of the people. Read Matthew chapter 2, and you'll hear both of those texts in the background. The text in the background is Herod's people discuss where the baby is to be born, and the text in the background is Christ is within Egypt and the people are killed by Herod. the children are killed by Herod. What do we find in Jeremiah chapter 31? In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, following, I think. Um, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and be bitter weeping. 
Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of their enemy. There is an interesting series of things being referred to there. Language that recalls a number of different events within the story of Genesis. The tragedy of Rachel as it plays out. We've talked already about the way in which Joseph's death, apparent death as he goes down to slavery in Egypt, connects to the events of the teraphim. We talked yesterday about Benjamin being pursued and how that recalls the events of the teraphim. The near the apparent death of Benjamin. What will happen there? Here we have another similar reference, I think, that looks at that tragic story. A voice is heard in Ramah, a voice lifted up on high. If we go back through the story of Genesis, we'll see the voice of Potiphar's wife lifted up in a way that's very similar in its language. Lamentation and bitter weeping. The bitterness by which this accentuated word for bitterness that we find in the way that Joseph's brothers treated him in Genesis chapter 49. Rachel weeping for her children as Jacob wept for Joseph, who seemed to be lost, the child of Rachel, refusing to be comforted like Jacob because they are no more. The child is no more as Reuben goes to the pit. And then God says, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work. Because God, um, there is a reward for your work for what you have done. What did she do? Go back through the story, and I think you'll see that the destiny of Rachel is being played out. In chapter 30, you have this weird story of the mandrakes. Weird story when um, Reuben comes in from the field at the time of the harvest, and he's picked some mandrakes, gives them to his mother, and Rachel comes and asks Leah, can I have some of your son's mandrakes? What is happening there? Is this maybe a clue to what's taking place here? I believe it is. Um, this reading isn't my own. It's a reading that came from Rabbi David Foreman, which I think is a very insightful reading of what's taking place in the story of Rachel. We can carry this into the New Testament. What happens? And why is it, what is the significance of the mandrakes? Are the mandrakes a fertility thing? Or are they something that's for the purpose of an aphrodisiac? What are they? It doesn't really matter, I don't think. The mandrakes is not the point. The point is who picked them and for who. It's Reuben, the first son of Leah, her firstborn, the one she has invested so much in, the one that represents that finally she might be loved by her husband, whose heart belongs to Rachel, her sister. And now her sister is asking for this gift that her firstborn son has given to her. She wants the picture from the fridge, the picture that expresses his love for her. He wants to share in the love that her child has for her. And if it was not bad enough already that she took her husband, now she wants to take the love of her child too. And there's something within that that you can see Leah seething. She's angry in her response. But what Rachel is doing is trying to build a bridge that she's not going to see herself as a rival anymore. The two sons that she's had previously have been called Dan, God has judged her case and acted in her on her behalf, and Naphtali, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. Now she's not going to see herself as a rival anymore, but as one who's at peace. And then, what do you see? 
you see that she offers that thing that was originally taken from her. That Jacob will lie with Leah that night. That was what was taken from her on that first night. That great tragedy that hangs over the whole story of Genesis. The tragedy of one wife being unloved. And not just one wife being unloved, but the children of that wife being unfavoured relative to the children of Rachel. And that has to be dealt with on each generation as they work out that problem. How do you live with the fact that you are the unloved or the unfavoured one? And working out that destiny first takes place in the story of Rachel. And out of that event, Issachar is born, meaning reward. Issachar is born to Leah. And God says to Rachel, not, I have seen your tears and I've taken compassion upon you, but I have, that what you will be rewarded for what you have done. What does she do? She forged peace. And when you go back to that point, I think you see the bringing together of the family. And now Rachel's children will be brought together from all these different nations. She is the person who represents the matriarch of Israel, the restoration of these lost sons. It's what we see being fulfilled in Christ. It's what we see in Matthew chapter 2, the tears of Rachel behind that story. And then the story of Benjamin and the near loss of the tribe of Benjamin in Gibeah. All of this Old Testament background helps us to trace these themes through, not just as an isolated story of this incident in Judges chapter 19, but as part of a grand narrative of God dealing graciously with a people that are corrupt, a people that are rebellious, and the way in which he will restore and heal wounds. It's a story of families. Now, we tend to tell our stories as individuals, what God has done in my life individually. But we have a lot of baggage within our families that God deals with. God deals with larger groups of people and heals these wounds. I've really rambled on that question, but any other? I'm wondering if you can talk to the Bible in the Bible. Yes. Good prompt. <laughs> yes. When we're thinking about these stories, these stories are not just stories on the page of Scripture, exciting as they may be. We've explored some of these stories, and yet they should be things that live within us, that drive us out into the world. So when we're reading the story of Abraham's hospitality and the contrast between that and the story of Lot and Sodom, we are called to be the sons and the daughters of Abraham, defined by the same hospitality. People who entertain angels unaware. As God sends out his disciples, he says they'll go into these different places, and there's a test of hospitality given to the different cities and towns and villages into which they enter. In the same way, we are sent out of the world as a test of hospitality, and we are being tested by hospitality. Are we a people that welcome others? As we trace the story of Hagar and Ishmael, we need to think about what it means to live as those who are in the position of a stranger. We need to think about what it means to be a people of prayer, like the prophet. All of these things inform our practice, but they don't just inform our practice. They drive us towards practice. And often what leads us towards that practice is the movement from Bible to liturgy to culture, that one flows into the other. 
The Bible is that which creates this world, that describes this world in which liturgy functions. So when we celebrate baptism, for instance, baptism is not just a statement of certain doctrinal truths. It's not just a sort of sign of the Apostles' Creed or something like that. It's a marking out of your body as the limbs and organs of Christ, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, as something that is set apart for resurrection. And that should inform the way that you live. It's not just a set of truths that you can maybe think about up there, a set of doctrinal beliefs. It's a statement about you, a statement particularly about your body. We don't often think about our bodies that way. We often think about Christianity as something that speaks just to our minds and our thoughts, and we need to think on that sort of level. But baptism speaks to our body, so that God's truth may be spread out through our lives, and God takes us by the root. Before you ever learn to express your subjectivity, before you ever have this experience of agency or volition, you are a body that's born to a particular set of parents, into a particular part of the world, that you occupy a certain part of the physical order. We are bodies. That God takes us by the root in baptism. Now, whatever you may have done in your body, whatever anyone may have done to you in your body, However much you feel the force of death working in your body, your mortality, however much you may feel shame in your body, and our bodies are the place where we feel shame, it's not just in our heads, where you feel guilt, where you feel weakness, and all these sorts of things. God has come to that point, and he's declared his grace, and that is something that should propel us into action. That movement, then, is not just from a certain set of biblical parallels and truths into our minds but something that moves through our bodies out into the world. In baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in the liturgy, we are being trained, we are being choreographed into a form of life that is supposed to flow out into the world. The way that we practice fellowship with each other around the table is something that should inform all of our meals. We are learning the practices and the rituals that teach us to act within the world more generally. When Israel was learning these different feasts and these things like the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Pentecost, these were principles that were supposed to be confirmed and validated in their practice. What does it mean to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost if you are not leaving the corners of your field for people to glean? If you're not showing mercy to the stranger and the people who need sustenance and don't have land of their own, it always leads out into practice. And so our concern with culture is also a concern of wisdom, a concern to be those who act as priests and kings and prophets within the world that speak with light and insight into situations where people are laboring in darkness and ignorance. We are those who speak the wisdom of Christ, foolishness to the world, but to the people of God, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so we are people to be formed as speakers into the world, not just as those who speak with a certain set of legal principles, but speak with insight, who are able to bring beauty into the world, to make things that are glorious, that as the wisdom of the Holy Spirit enabled Bezalel to construct a beautiful tabernacle, so we might create something beautiful where we find ourselves. 
And so all of this is supposed to ground us, and then as we find our feet firmly upon this text of Scripture, that text should flow up through us and come out in our lives in every single aspect. It strengthens our limbs. It informs our minds. It gives us a sense of groundedness, so somewhere to stand. And in that way, this one of the things that we've been trying to do as Theopolis, connect Bible and liturgy and culture. Now, many people, who isn't doing Bible? Who isn't doing liturgy? Who isn't doing culture? I mean, every Christian is concerned about these things. But we're trying to think of how to move the strength of the biblical witness through liturgy into people's lives. And so through those lives, it becomes expressed in every single aspect of their reality. It's a challenge. <laughs> we're all in the process of learning this. It's all the process of forming imaginations, changing lives. Um, and at that point, I, I see Joe moving in the back, which is probably the sign we need to finish. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.